Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers hosting another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the story of wrestling in America, as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. So now, we step back into the ring and back into time. We get wild and wild and treetop tall with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. All right, Ron, have you settled in after the holiday period? Oh, yeah, man. Uh, finally got uh, finally got uh, that uh, behind us and, you know, into another new year. And, wow, uh, uh, everything is uh, cool here. Nice weather, beautiful. And uh, looking forward to uh, to this one today, Dave. Uh, we're about to start telling, uh, telling uh, a story, a, a real story, a real life story wrestling story uh it goes along with all the televisions and all of the cards that we've been talking about uh we're we're about to get into some heavy stuff at this point you know after reading the title for this studcast number 282 i can't wait to get into this episode ron this one this episode is called the 1979 nightmare begins we've already been talking for a few weeks about your challenges in 1979 and it being the most difficult year of your wrestling career. Studcaster now covering the year of 1979, of course, almost exactly 44 years ago to the day we are recording this. And obviously, judging from the title of this one, the year starts to develop problems like right away. <laughs> well, that's... That's kind of an understatement, Dave. <laughs> so, it, you know, it began actually in the second week of 1979 uh, when my brother called me from Pensacola, which was the home of Southeastern Gulf Coast Territory. And, uh, you know, uh, he, we were talking quite regularly, but uh, he called me to tell me about something that had been going on between him and my father. And uh, normally, you know, I would wait till later in the studcast to talk about this subject. But this news and this telephone call was so immediately concerning to me. I think it's going to be extremely interesting to listeners out there today. So let's begin today with the news. Uh, weekly, uh, the, the new segment that uh, I'm going to be doing in all the studcasts uh, for quite a while now. It's called uh, the Doomsday 1979 segment. So uh, everybody can see this is going to be the first example of how life was about to dramatically change for me. And really, that sounds kind of, uh, well, very ominous, ominous stud. So where, where do you want to start? 
Well, how about we start with something good here, man, because the rest of it ain't too good, I don't believe. So the fact that, you know, we'd been successful with the southeastern Knoxville and in, in the first four years I'd been there had great success, obviously, in the last two of those for sure. And we were also successful in the first 10 months of southeastern Gulf Coast. Uh, so that success to combined with what was going to happen next in 1979 was basically going to make this entire year uh, an even bigger shock for me, man. So uh, southeastern Knoxville, the second week of January 1979, that territory was not a problem at all. Uh, and it wasn't going to become one for about another five months. But southeastern Gulf Coast was going to be in real trouble first. So in the second week of January, 1979, I got a call from my father. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> it, it, you know, actually the call was from Rob, but it was about my father and it was concerning the conversation uh, that, uh, that he had recently had with my dad. So when he admitted he had several recent conversations with our father, uh, who explained what bad shape he and his partner, Jerry Jarrett's of Memphis territory was currently. Uh, and, uh, you know, they were having trouble. Uh, and uh, we'll get further into that as we go along here. So um, they had, uh, he said, Rob said that basically uh, that uh, my dad had offered him a job booking there. Uh, and uh, that uh, they had been talking since the early first part of December of 1978, about a month prior to this conversation. So, so that was a real no-no in the uh, wrestling business. You didn't interfere with any, in any way with bookers in other guys' territories, especially without getting permission from an owner to talk to those bookers. So Robert said he had been offered a very good deal to take the job. But he didn't really want to leave Pensacola, especially since he was part owner of the company. And, and we were experiencing such great success at that point. Uh, what he didn't tell me was on this call was that he had already taken the job and now had been asked about the status of some of the tremendous talent we had there. Okay, so it sounds like you're getting your grass cut this morning, stud. <laughs> yeah, doesn't that figure, man? <laughs> when you're ready to record, man. Well, I know. Expect the worst. Let's roll it, well, and then an airplane flies over. I thought it was an airplane to begin with. All right, so but back to the serious stuff you're talking about. That sounds like some extremely bad news, and I'd say because this involved your father, it made it an even more difficult thing to deal with. Well, you know, that's kind of another understatement, Dave. <laughs> yeah. I always had kind of a big heart, man. And uh, especially when it came to people in trouble in the wrestling business, especially in this case, it was my own family. So this instantly put me kind of between a rock and a hard place. Uh, I naturally wanted to help uh, since I was so familiar with what it was like to operate in the down territory. I'd been through it, you know, for a couple of years. So, uh, so I'd been there myself uh, for two years, basically, as an owner, and I also experienced the territory in Pensacola. There was dead 10 months ago and was now drawing more fans per week than the Knoxville territory. So I also knew how quickly things could be turned around if, uh, if it was done properly. So I wanted to help, man, but, but uh, I had only been back in Knoxville for a couple of months. Uh, I'd been living there again. I'd gone home. And uh, because I needed to, I had a new booker there. 
and uh, and I really needed to stay there as much as possible. I didn't know much about Bob Roop's uh, experience as a booker, and I didn't know how he dealt with the wrestlers, and that was important things to be aware of. Uh, you got a booker, you need to you really really need to trust what's going on. So then Bob Armstrong had been in the southeastern Gulf Coast Territory for almost a year at this point, since the day we opened, you know. And uh, and he would have been the perfect candidate for Booker in that territory to take Bob's place. But uh, when we started, before we bought the business, me and Bob had an agreement that if, if we bought south, the Gulf Coast Territory down there, that... Uh, he would go down there. He basically lived by himself for this whole year. His family stayed up there in uh, Georgia. And uh, I made an agreement with him that uh, if he stayed there for close to the first year, then uh, I would send him back to Knoxville at the end of that first year uh, so that he could be closer to his family in Georgia, which was quite a bit closer to his family in Georgia mm-hmm. than Mobile and some of the cities we were working in. Yeah. So, and in, in fact, Bob was a, uh, on the Sunday afternoon southeastern Knoxville card that we're going to be talking about in this studcast in a few minutes. So on top of all that, uh, had the situation with Bob. Now he's got to go back to Knoxville. Uh, Rob's wanting to go to Memphis. Uh, if I let Rob go to Memphis to book and wrestle there, I'd have to find another booker for southeastern Gulf Coast. And I mean right away. <laughs> And that's not an easy deal. Well, you were right earlier when you said this doomsday 1979 weekly segment was going to be very interesting for fans. It's easy to see how you were caught in the middle between looking out for your own company while trying to help your father's business and giving your brother a great opportunity at the same time. You had a lot of irons in the fire. So what did you do? Well, I gave my consent, man, to my father. And Jerry Jarrett to, to work out an agreement with my brother to become their booker. Uh, I also offered to work in Memphis for them some, as much as possible, I told them. Uh, in that one town, it was on Monday night, I was I figured I could probably make that happen. And, uh, and besides that, I'd been a big star in Memphis in 1975. I was the Southern Heavyweight Champion there for about seven months straight, and I worked Memphis every Monday night. So... Uh, it was what uh, came next, man, that really frustrated me the most. Uh, but before I go any further, I want to kind of get our regular stud cast started, man, and hopefully we can get back to this problem a little bit later. Okay, so this really is a fascinating, really fascinating stuff, stud. I can't wait to hear more Doomsday 1979. So, so on the other hand, where do we ride today? How do we get started today? Well, we're going to go into one of the best cards in Knoxville history, man. And this one, uh, Bob Armstrong and uh, several other stars from the Gulf Coast Territory are going to be coming to Knoxville for a special card on January 7th, 1979. It was the first Sunday event in Knoxville Coliseum. Uh, every winter, we went to Sunday afternoons at 3 o'clock. This was going to be the first one. We wanted to really get it kicked off right. And uh, we're going to reveal that fantastic card in this show. Uh, we're going to talk about the TV that promoted it. We'll talk about the results of the card and the attendance there. And then, obviously, we're going to ride south, man, the southeastern Gulf Coast uh, for the Mobile, Alabama card of Wednesday, January 10th, 1979, same week as the Knoxville card. And uh, this Mobile card is another outstanding card. Uh, it had an I Quit match. It had a Texas Death match. And it had a title match. 
so we look at the TV that promoted it, the results of the matches, and the attendance of all three of those major cities that are down there. And hopefully we're going to get time uh, for a learning tree question that we didn't get to last week, Dave. Well, I tell you what, you've loaded it up against uh, all that, and we've already had a taste of the difficulties of being an owner of a wrestling company. So who was on the Knoxville Coliseum show for Sunday, January 7th, 1979? Well, Butch Malone, who had been recently come back, hadn't been there in about two years, and Jim Dalton, uh, they were opening up the afternoon, and they were the first of three tag matches that was on this card. Uh, and they were going to be wrestling against uh, two returning stars, Tony Charles from the Southeastern Territory and Mike Stalling, who also was in the Southeastern Territory but had done some matches in Knoxville. He's returning too. So Tony Charles and Mike Stallings are going to be in the first tag match against Butch Malone and Jim Dalton. Charlie Cook, who's getting over great there at this point, uh, was going to be matched up against another guy that was returning, Gorgeous George Jr. Uh, Kevin Sullivan and Ken Lucas were taking on Tora Tanaka and Ron Wright. Uh, Then there were two other stars from Southeastern Gulf Coast that were going to be on this card that they hadn't seen in quite a while. Bob Armstrong was going to be against the Mongolian Stomper. And obviously, Gorgeous George is not only going to wrestle there, but he's going to be a manager as well. Then Bob Armstrong and Bob Root were going to wrestle against Ronnie Garvin and myself. Uh, the main event on this one was an annual event at this point. A 20-man, two-ring, triple chance, battle royal. Had $10,000 going to the two winners. And also on this card, and competing in the Battle Royal only, these guys are just there for the Battle Royal, mm-hmm. was Rip Smith, Ron Wright's brother, Don Wright, Dennis Hall, the Mighty Yankee, George McCrary, Ted mm-hmm. Allen, and a 400-pound newcomer called Crusher Blackwell. <laughs> going to be making his first appearance ever in Southeastern. And uh, this guy is destined, man, to become a star there. That was an awesome card. Three matches and two singles, all loaded with stars. Then a 20-man battle royal with $10,000 to the two winners. I didn't notice one name being there. One name I missed, Rod. The great Malenko. What was up with him? Where was he? Well, uh, although, you know, he he looked great. Uh, Malenko was getting up in age a little bit. And, uh, you know... uh, as we got older, man, in the sport of wrestling, you ended up uh, having a few injuries, seemed like all the time. And Malenko needed some time off to kind of heal, man. Uh, he had had a long run. Uh, so he went home to Tampa, where he was living. He stayed there for six weeks. He's not going to be on a card for six weeks. and uh, But he had a major part in the group that was responsible for bringing in this new guy, Crusher Blackwell. Okay, so with this huge card and a large number of wrestlers on it, how many wrestlers were on the TV the day before this gigantic card setting all this up? Well, for the first time ever, man, in Southeastern, uh, we got a record number of wrestlers were on this TV show that was coming up. Uh, we had four tag team matches in one show, 16 wrestlers in all were on that TV. And it's the day before the Battle Royal. It's a Saturday. We're harassing on Sunday afternoon. So it's the day before. And uh, 
the, they were there because of, we decided to have the four tag matches because of the significance of the rules of a two-ring battle royal, where every battle royal of these two rings ended up with a tag match with two wrestlers left in ring one going against the two wrestlers left in ring two and a regular tag match. And the winner of that final tag match was going to split that $10,000 prize. Uh, so uh, that's the way it worked and uh, felt like uh, putting a lot of tag matches on that TV made some sense. All right. So were who were some of the teams compromising the four tag matches on TV that day? Well, this is the names of the four teams that won on TV that day. Uh, Tor Tanaka and Ron Wright, they won their tag match. Ken Lucas and Kevin Sullivan won their tag match. Bob Roop and Bob Orton Jr. Uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, they, they won their match. And then uh, the team that got the best reaction of all of them was the last team on that on that television, and boy, the studio audience exploded when Bob Armstrong and Ronnie Garvin came out. They hadn't seen Bob <laughs> Armstrong in almost a year. All right, four fantastic teams there. How long had it been since Bob Armstrong had been in southeastern Knoxville? Well, it had been more than a year since Bob had lost a loser-leave match at the end of 1977, and he had appeared in a few matches in 1978, but uh, in all those matches, he came in wearing a mask as the Georgia Jawjacker. So they had seen him a little bit in the spring of 78. But uh, since it was more than a year after his loss, uh, he was able now to come back without the mask. He could come back as Bob Armstrong. So that's why he shows up as Bob Armstrong again. Uh, it had been quite a while since they had seen him uh, uh, as either Bob Armstrong <laughs> or the Georgia Jawjacker. <laughs> His unexpected return had really been a big boost to business, no doubt. So who was on the personality profile? Let's go there. In an all-tag TV show like this. Well, and Kay, it was more like what than who for this personality profile. <laughs> it, it, yeah, because it was a really special one, Dave. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it was shot in the Knoxville Coliseum two days before the Battle Royal event. Uh, it was, uh, you know... In the first week of 1979, we had started out on Monday, January the 1st, with a match. And uh, luckily, there wasn't any events in the Coliseum that week. So uh, we were able to get into the Coliseum uh, uh, two days before this uh, match to shoot uh, uh, a completely different type of uh, personality profile. Uh, Les had been... Uh, had taken a WBIR TV film crew, went to the Coliseum on Friday before the Sunday Battle Royal, and uh, both rings were up. They were sitting side by side. Uh, they shot the special profile from several different spots in the building to kind of give people at home and the people that didn't go to the matches and a view uh, of what it was like just to see these two rings sitting in a big building like that in the middle of it. And uh, they shot the scenes from the upper balcony. They went down to the ringside level. And then they even shot some things from inside both of the rings. Uh, basically, it was a tremendous exhibition and an in-depth explanation by Les of what a two-ring triple chance over-the-top battle royal was all about. Uh, Les and the crew uh, 
they basically made it come to life, man, for the fans that had never seen one of these unique events. And I think this personality profile probably sold as many tickets for that Sunday afternoon <laughs> as the event itself. Wow, what a great idea, Ron. Having been to a couple of those, it's pretty impressive when you first walk in the building and you see those two huge rings side by side. So let's go to the Knoxville Coliseum and what happened there Sunday afternoon, January 7th, 1979. This is a big one. Well, opening match between Tony Charles and Mike Stallings against Butch Malone and Jim Dalton was won by Charles and Stallings. Uh, those boys worked pretty good together because they'd had a lot of matches in the southeastern Gulf Coast together. Uh, Charlie Cook won pretty easily over gorgeous George Jr. Kevin Sullivan and Ken Lucas uh, beat Tor Tanaka and Ron Wright. And uh, in a single, that big, the second single match of that card, Bob Armstrong and the Mongolian Stomper, managed by gorgeous George Jr., they tore the Coliseum down, man. Uh, fans had no idea that the match they were watching and going crazy about had been taking place regularly, man, in main events in the Southeastern Territory, 500 miles to the south. You know, it's kind of strange, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, they didn't know what they, what was going on. And uh, so uh, they had no idea what the hell uh, that they had been missing. <laughs> Bob Orton Jr., Bob Roop, they won by DQ over Ronnie Garvin and myself in that last tag match. All right, and then the thing that really stops everybody when they walk into the Coliseum, you see the two rings there. So what happened in that big two-ring battle royal? Well, man, it was it was really phenomenal. Huh? Some fans, you know, never even sat down during this match. They just stood up for the entire deal. All wrestlers, they start out in ring one. That's the way these two rings all started. You had to be eliminated from ring one, and you had to be eliminated, you had to be thrown over the top rope. You had to land on the concrete. Your feet touch the concrete, any part of your body, then you were eliminated. Uh, if you got thrown over from ring one into ring two, you weren't eliminated, but you got to come back into ring one. And, uh, you know, so uh, the, and they had an opportunity to, to, to be thrown over. You had to be thrown over that, uh, that rope on three sides of it where you got to the concrete floor. And uh, when you got eliminated, uh, you automatically went into ring two. Once you got thrown out, you just crawled into ring two, and there was already a second battle royal going on in ring two. Uh, so that's basically why they call it a triple chance. That was the second chance to win the battle royal. You got thrown out the first time, you go into ring two, you get thrown out of there, then there's a third chance coming up. So then Bob Armstrong and uh, Crusher Blackwell were the last two men in ring one. And uh, they're going to be partners in the final tag match for the money. Uh, fans had never seen Blackville before, ever, before this battle royal started. And uh, obviously, they had no idea whether he was a babyface or a heel. You know, he's a big old son of a gun, man. I mean, he was a hoss <laughs> and 400 plus. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. And uh, Armstrong and him, uh, you know, they end up the last two guys in ring one, and they end up standing there kind of staring at each other, man, watching what was going on in ring two. But uh, I think Bob was kind of, you know, measuring this big dude up like, what am I going to do? And thank God he's on my side. He's on my team. <laughs> yeah. <right>? So, um, <laughs> So then uh, Ronnie Garvin and Bob Orton Jr. end up being the last two men in the other ring. Now, that was a very odd pairing of partners, you know. <laughs> uh, 
Garvin and Orton because they've been wrestling against each other. Uh, in fact, we were in that match preceding the back to ring battle royal against them. And uh, so they entered uh, ring one. The guys in ring two came over into ring one and they start the tag match. Uh, that's where you get the triple chance because that gives you your third opportunity to, to win the royal and win the money. Mm-hmm. Whoever wins that match is going to win the $10,000. Wow. So uh, Carvin and Orton uh, against Armstrong and Blackwell. Wow. Just uh, pretty, pretty crazy to end up like that. Yep. The winning team got to split the 10 grand. How often, Stud, did you see one of these battle royals end up with a pairing like that? And who, who ended up winning the money? Well, I think it was the only time I ever saw that happen, man, where you had a baby face and the heel, uh, you know, on both on both teams. And, and it made for a very strange, man, and pretty much at the end, an ultimately violent tag team match. Uh, it didn't take long to find out what Crusher Blackwell was all about, though, because Armstrong, uh, you know, got in, the, got in the ring with the Orton to start the match. And, uh, and Armstrong had him going really good, just about had him beat. In fact, he tried. He put the sleeper on him and he had him down. And uh, and uh, Blackwell uh, reached over the rope to tag in. So Bob tagged Blackwell out, and uh, Blackwell came into the ring. And then uh, he refused to cover <laughs> Orton. He, huh. t- he, in fact, he grabbed Orton by the <laughs> arm and he drug him across the ring to Garvin's corner. And then he just left him there. Hmm. You know, and basically for Garvin to tag in, you know, he ain't going to beat him. I'm not going to pin him, right? So Bob came across the ring and he got in Crusher Blackwell's face. And boy, they had some words there. You know, Bob couldn't understand, hey, what's this all about? And then uh, so Bob, you know, he finally turned around and he headed back to his corner and Blackwell attacked him from behind, man. So everybody in the building then knew what Blackwell was all about. And uh, so Garvin came on in the ring, you know, uh, he, why not? Uh, Gar- and Orton still kind of laying there. And he went after Blackwell. When, when Gordon Orton got up, he, he tore into Garvin and Armstrong. Mm. And wow, that Coliseum ignited, man. And, and it stayed on fire. That building stayed on fire uh, for, for the rest of that match. Uh, and and it, what it turned into a really nasty brawl is what it turned into. Uh, the biggest fight of the night uh, and was between both sets of those partners. And it just seemed like it went on and on. Referee uh, was trying to get control of it. Uh, he finally got knocked down by both members of both teams. And uh, he stopped the match. He disqualified both teams. Uh, with the Coliseum fans were still going crazy. And uh, now they didn't have a winner. There wasn't going to be no winner for this battle royal. So Blackwell and Orton left the ring, you know. Uh, and then Garvin and Armstrong stayed, and they were asking about the money. Man, who's going to get the money here, right? So, you know, there was a little bit of a confusion in there for a few minutes, and the referee finally went and had the announcer tell the fans that the 10000 prize money was going to be held up until Southeastern Commissioner Don Curtis uh, would make a decision on what kind of match there was going to be there to settle it uh, next week and to uh, see who was going to get the money. All right. That's what an ending to a great afternoon of wrestling. So what was the attendance? 
It was a tremendous card, man. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, it, it was on the first Sunday afternoon of the winter season. And wow, it was massive. The Coliseum figure was 5,600. Uh, basically, it was a total sellout. There was no empty seats. And mm-hmm. and uh, the people up front uh, told me that they thought they probably turned away at least 2,000 people. Holy they couldn't God. get in. <laughs> All right, that's what a great beginning to this stud cast and a perfect place for a break. So let's do that. And when we return, we're going to find out what was happening in the other territory, Southeastern Gulf Coast. That's coming up on this stud cast. Okay, stud. And on this break, let's talk about your home on YouTube. It's called Southeastern Rewind. And coming up very soon, the 21st is a Saturday. You've got your first ever Ask the stud show that you're going to be doing on YouTube. Tell us about that. What's that going to be like? Oh, geez, man. Uh, the thing that's really impressed me, Dave, is the questions. Uh, it's a question and answer show. I love doing those. I haven't done one of them in a long time. This one is exclusively on YouTube, Southeastern Rewind. It's going to be on Saturday, like you said, January the 21st. And, uh, it is just, wow, I can't wait. I'm going to be recording it very soon now. Uh, and uh, I just can't wait to answer some of these questions. It's the best set of questions I have ever seen from fans. Uh, and I really, really love these shows. I think people are going to really enjoy this. Uh, we haven't been doing a whole lot on the YouTube channel, but we're going to do these. We're going to try to do them uh, every third Saturday in the month. Do one of them every month. And so this one is the first one. And, and if the questions are anything like this, these questions are for this first one, it's going to be a tremendous series, man. These uh, Ask the Stud question and answer shows. How many, so, how many questions do you think you'll get in and how much time will you have on this show? Uh, I, I think I've already got uh, as many as 25 or more questions. So I have more questions than I certainly can answer in an hour. Wow. For sure. But uh, I will just take those questions that don't get answered and roll them into the next show that will be in February. But, uh, well, if fans like this, if they like these question and answer type of programs, I think this one is going to be really, really interesting. It's a little bit of everything, and it comes from so many different states in the country. Mm-hmm. Pretty amazing where all these people are, are, are asking these questions from. And it means Looking you. It means to. you. It means you really got to be on your feet if they're hitting you with all these questions. So you got to be prepared. Yeah, you know. I mean, uh, I love doing these. You know, and I don't really know what the questions are. You know, and I, I kind of like that. You know, I never know. I, I like having them. Just uh, I find out when they ask me the question, and I record it. So uh, it's it's a lot of fun for me, and I think it's going to be great fun for the fans out there. Cool. All right. All right, that's going to be fascinating on YouTube, Stud, on Southeastern Rewind. All right, so we're now going to ride into Southeastern Gulf Coast in the second half of this Studcast. From what we all learned in the early part of this Studcast, there were big changes coming there also. So what card are we going to be talking about for there today? We're going to focus on the card in Mobile, Alabama. Uh, which is the the big hoss man down there in uh, 
in southeastern uh, Gulf Coast. Uh, it's a card of Wednesday night, January the 10th, 1979. Uh, and it's basically just three days after the event. We just finished talking about in Knoxville. And if fans remember last week, we had two ring battle royals in all the major cities down there in southeastern Gulf Coast. Uh, no two battle royals ended up with the same four guys in the ring. So uh, with, they all ended up with different people. And uh, that uh, means that uh, and all of those matches kind of ended up similar to the Knoxville match where there was no winners in those matches. So the money was held up. And uh, so we're going to get the uh, match to decide who's going to get the money in Mobile on this card. So the opening match for the card, Mobile, was uh, the hometown boy there. Uh, really good young wrestler, man. A good-looking kid. Uh, Ricky Fields, son of Lee Fields, against uh, Ken Dellinger. Terry Gibbs was uh, going to be taking on Gorgeous George Jr. Uh, then there were three main events. A Texas death match uh, with Tony Charles versus Dr. D, David Schultz. A special six-man tag with Robert, uh, Jimmy Golden, and Norvell Austin facing Don Carson, the assassin, and Billy Spears. And the last match on the card was going to be for the held-up 10,000 prize from the two-ring battle royal the week before there in Mobile. So the final match on this card was a return to that tag match. It was between Bob Armstrong and the Wrestling Pro, last two guys, winners in ring two of that battle royal. And uh, they were going to be against the Mongolian Stomper and Buzz Sawyer, who was a, wow, he was a wildcat. He was a tremendous young wrestler, man. Uh, and uh, Mongolian Stomper and Buzz had, were the winners in ring of one. So uh, it was going to be a one fall, winner takes all, no DQ match. Uh, there's going to be the money's going out to going to go to the winners this time for sure. Wow. All right. A lot, a ton happening on that card. So what was on the TV show that promoted it and really set it all up? Well, this is kind of where I began having difficulty, man. 44 years ago, Dave, uh, finding out everything that was happening down south on the TVs and the cards in southeastern Gulf Coast territory. Uh, because of the situation, as I said, Rob's going to end up leaving pretty soon here down in that area. This is 44 years ago. And I was focused on Knoxville. Uh, I had that new booker, Bob Rude. I wanted to get an idea of what kind of job he was doing. Uh, like I said, Rob was going to be leaving the Gulf Coast. And so was Bob Armstrong, uh, who had been there from, for almost a, a year he, since the start of southeastern Gulf Coast. So there's a lot of changes coming down there in the south. Uh, and then I had to depend on some other guys to try to help me with information. Charlie Platt, he could help me with information about some of the TV shows, but he didn't have any booking experience. He wasn't going to be able to help with booking for sure. Uh, Robert and Bob, they'd been sending, uh, you know, all the cards and the TV formats to me every week. So that told me basically who was in the towns on the cards and who was on the TV. And uh, they were kind of like my eyes and ears down there. I couldn't be there. I was in Knoxville. And uh, they... They told me about the angles. We talked about the angles and the things that were going on, what was getting over, and they kept me up on that part of it as much as possible. But uh, they were going to soon both be gone down there, and, and I was going to, at that point, start losing touch with the angles and with the talent 
and with the things that had been making us money. I mean, it was it was a pretty uh, big concern of what may be going to start happening down there. Uh, in the early part of 1978, my cousin, Roy Lee Welch, who was another partner with me in southeastern Gulf Coast, uh, and he had been, I don't know, fans, if they think back in 1977, he became a big star in Knoxville. Uh, did a lot of matches with uh, Joe LaDuke as his partner. And, uh, you know, so he was uh, the first partner uh, in the company to move to Pensacola. He had actually already moved there in early 1978. Uh, Roy was a sharp businessman. And, uh, and I had him handling the box offices since, uh, since we'd opened our doors there in March of 78. And uh, that responsibility was why he wasn't seen very much in that first couple of years down there as a wrestler because I had him doing probably maybe one of them, the most, if not the most important job of handling the money. So, uh, so he went to every city every night. He handled the ticket sales. He handled the ticket sellers. He handled the state athletic commission reports that we had to file. He handed out the checks to the wrestlers every Sunday night in Pensacola. That was payday. And uh, thank goodness that part of the business was in good hands because everything else down there was soon going to be in turmoil. Uh, so here's what I do know about the Southeastern Gulf Coast TV that was recorded on this week for this card that we're talking about. It was recorded on Saturday, January 6, 1979. Uh, four days later, they're going to be wrestling in Mobile. I knew that there was a six-man tag on this TV with Robert, Jimmy, and Norvell Austin. Uh, and Norvell was really getting over at that point. Uh, I knew that Buzz Sawyer opened the TV show, and he got his second win on TV. And uh, thankfully, he wasn't going anywhere. And uh, he was getting over as a heel just as good and just as fast as Norvell was as a babyface. So that was an encouraging thing, thank goodness. Mongolian Stomper was on the cart, uh, and that gave him another opportunity to do what he normally did, to panic that studio crowd. And Bob Armstrong told me he certainly did. He said he drove them all out of the studio again. Uh, so then both the Stomper and Bob... Uh, were in all the return Battle Royal money matches. Those two guys were one of the two on each team that was in the, all those Battle Royal finishes on the final part for the $10,000. They had a different partner in each of the markets, in each of the four markets. And because of that fact, interviews could be made individually, had to be made individually for each market uh, by the four guys that were left in those battle royals from the week before, and it depended on who those four guys were as to who, who cut those interviews for those for those big uh, money matches at the end of that card in, in the three markets down there. Personality profile for this show was with Don Carson, the assassin, and uh, their manager, Billy Spears. And uh, Rob told me uh, <laughs> Billy Spears made a big deal out of the fact that he had to be in the ring. Why was he having to wrestle and be a part of what was going on in the ring, uh, wrestle against three guys, when he had a team that the two of them were good enough to beat the three that was booked against him? So, you know, Billy Spears knowing him, I guess he thought that was a good solid argument, but, uh, you know, not such a good argument. Uh, then Charlie uh, 
uh, after the, after Billy Spears had his say about uh, how bad he thought he was being treated in this, then Charlie cut away to the opponents that they had, uh, Robert and Jimmy and Norvell, uh, during the profile for a short comment because their six-man tag was in all three of the major markets. So basically, we got plugs uh, for the for the big uh, battle royal money, mm-hmm. uh, the tag matches for that. We got plugs for this six-man tag. Then uh, upcoming David Schultz and Tony Charles, Texas Death Match, was uh, publicized and taken care of in the third match, the next match after the profile. Tony was at the set, and he got to make some comments about a death match. And, uh, and while he was doing that, uh, Pop Armstrong said Schultz, was just pulverizing his opponent, man, in the ring. He said said he felt sorry for the guy, which wasn't uncommon for David Schultz and the guys he was wrestling. Uh, The show closed with that six-man tag that talked about earlier that Rob and Jimmy and Norvell were going to be wrestling on TV, and uh, they won the match. Norvell was the actual winner, and he used his diving headbutt to, to put him away. Put the other team away. Uh, <laughs> That's always fun to see. All right, so that was a really good TV with every match on the upcoming card covered. So how about the results of the Mobile card four days after this TV? Well, knowing the situation with the Memphis Territory uh, and, and that soon Rob was going to be uh, leaving and going there, and uh, Bob Armstrong was going to be headed back to southeastern Knoxville. It was very important to push those guys that are going to be staying. Uh, Ricky Fields, in that first match on that card, was a good worker. Uh, He was not just over in Mobile because he was born and raised in that town. He was over in the rest of the territory. And he so that was going to, uh, to put him on some cards to take some place, the place of Rob and uh, Bob and, and some of those uh, big stars that were leaving. And uh, he was extremely popular, obviously, in Mobile. Uh, he won his match against Ken Dillinger. Uh, Terry Gibbs was also a great young talent. Wow, a good wrestler, man, and great-looking kid, good body. And uh, he, he had the ability to be able to be used up and down the card. Uh, that was going to be necessary because of, we're losing two top stars there pretty quick. And uh, he won his match, beat Gorgeous George Jr. Then in the Texas death match, uh, it was between two great workers, man. They ain't no doubt about that. Uh, uh, Tony Charles and David Schultz, wow. Uh, and Schultz, especially at this point, is really becoming a, a, a good hand. It's, is the way a lot of people uh, described a good wrestler as a good hand. And uh, so in this Texas death match, uh, they were both going to be staying there. I didn't have to worry about those two guys. Thank goodness. They're going to be there. And, uh, wow, Texas, you know, this Texas death match, uh, both guys end up bleeding. It was a bloody match, man. Uh, and since it was in Mobile, it was the kind of match those fans loved, man. They loved that blood. And then, <laughs> and uh, Tony Charles won the match, but David Schultz looked just as strong as Charles did, man. He just like it's like there was no winner in the match, or but there was actually two winners, maybe. So then Don Carson, the assassin, and Billy Spears, they won the six-man tag over Robert Fuller, Jimmy Golden, Norvell Austin. Rob was the guy that lost the match. And, uh, and he lost it uh, 
It had something to do with Don Carson loading his glove. Obviously, Carson's glove was the big thing, just like it had been in Knoxville for years. And uh, there was going to be a championship tag match uh, between Robert and Jimmy and uh, Don Carson and the assassin uh, in the match next week. Uh, because the Heels won this one, uh, Rob and Jimmy are the champions. And uh, it's going to be a big tag match in all three of the big cities the next week uh, for the Southeastern Tag Championship. Uh, Bob Armstrong told me the final match for the $10,000 in Mobile in particular was much better than he had even expected it to be. And in that one, the Stomper and Buzz Sawyer, uh, uh, Bob had uh, been partners with the Wrestling Pro, which, uh, you know, he had not had any matches where the Wrestling Pro was that high up the card. Uh, and uh, uh, so the Stomper and Buzz Sawyer, they won the match over. They actually beat Bob, and uh, and his time there was limited at this point. Uh, he was going uh, north to Knoxville, and those two hills needed the heat. So, gosh, it, it, it had to happen. And uh, But Bob told me he was really impressed with the wrestling pro's ability, man, in the main event. He said uh, – uh, Leon Baxter, that was the wrestling pro's name. He said Leon was going to be uh, moving up the card, needed to be, due to what was coming in the southeastern Gulf Coast with these guys leaving. He's going to be another one of those guys that's going to be pushed into into moving up the card. Mm. Wow. Listen, we as, as locals, we thought Leon Baxter, the, the wrestling pro, was the dude because uh, he was the main eventer in the – uh, so nothing is surprising about what you're talking about. All right. So listen, you're painting a real clear picture of where things for you were beginning to be heading in 1979. You were about to be losing at least two top baby faces from Southeastern Gulf Coast, and that could not be a good thing. So how about the attendance in the three major cities? Well, all the cities throughout the territory uh, dropped that week in attendance, which wasn't uncommon uh, because it was after a big event. These two ring battle roars were big events, and it was pretty hard to follow those two ring battle roars. Uh, Montgomery's crowd dropped from 4,000, a little over 4,000, 4,100 down to 3,500. Mobile went from 5,600 down to 4,900. And Dothan uh, dropped from 4,800 to 4,200. But don't get me wrong, this was still tremendous numbers compared to what they had been drawing there for years before we came, right? I mean, (laughs) that that territory was so dead, these were huge numbers. But but to me, it was certainly cause for concern, uh, especially with the news that I had received during the second week in 1979. All right, Stud, before we run out of time, can we go back to the problem you talked about earlier in the show? So what was it that came up after you and your brother talked in the same week, 40 in this same week, 44 years ago? What frustrated you more than anything about this Booker situation with your father, your brother and Jerry Jarrett? Well, you know, I think it was the fact that uh, their need was for much more than just a booker. Uh, you know, had it been just a booker that they needed, then uh, that was all they were looking for. 
uh, it wouldn't have concerned me or frustrated me. Uh, but they wanted a booker, plus some of our southeastern talent men that had built not only the Knoxville Territory, but also was now rocking man that old the old Gulf Coast Territory down there. Uh, so sure, you know we were doing very well in both the territories, but giving up a creative booker that had been with me for three years, and uh, and several fantastic top workers man was was asking a lot. You know, the, and if I agreed, it, it was I, it was going to greatly affect both territories, and it was time basically for me to talk to my father myself. Okay, Ron, it's pretty evident that what we're discussing here today is real wrestling history, no doubt that hardly any fans have ever heard. All right, we are gonna get a learning tree question in today. Can you believe it? But can you quickly tell us about that conversation you had with your father? Early January 1979. What was give us give us the insight on that? Okay, and uh, so my father and I, we kind of Dave had a very strange relationship, especially after we tried to make a deal with Eddie Farhat, the Sheik, to buy his Ohio territory in 1977, uh, and uh, I'd been looking for basically a down and out territory, a second territory in 1977, because I'd had such success in Knoxville with Southeastern, mm-hmm. and I thought I could duplicate that success if I just had another territory. And my father, uh, you know, came along about that time, and, uh, you know, he was wanting to get back involved in wrestling. And, uh, you know, he, he said, I'd like to partner with you, and, uh, and we'll do that second territory. Uh, so we focused on Ohio. But the deal fell through with Ohio. Uh, I'd already been looking at the old Gulf Coast Territory while we were looking at Ohio, just in case something like that happened, that it did fall apart. And uh, that uh, that uh, the old Gulf Coast Territory was really down and out like Ohio was. Uh, and my dad, when I talked to him about Gulf Coast, when the Ohio thing kind of fell through, uh, he had no interest in the Gulf Coast. And mm-hmm. we spent a lot of time in 1977, and I soon realized that our basic ideas, man, uh, for running a wrestling business, different <laughs> quite a bit. You know, we wow. didn't really wow. see the way to grow wrestling and the way to do it in, in the same way. And uh, so when the Ohio deal fell through in December of 1977, uh, two weeks later, I bought the Gulf Coast Territory, and it, and it was the same territory that my father had started in 1954. Mm-hmm. He sold it to Welsh family members, uh, his cousins, my cousins too, the Fields brothers, and they had purchased him from him in 1959, and, and I don't think he had any interest in building that Gulf Coast Territory again. My dad was the type of guy he liked to take dead territories, turn them into monster successes, sell them, and move on. And he didn't want to go back, I don't think, to try to do it again in Gulf Coast. So in early 1978, um, my father Roy died. And my father inherited uh, my grandfather's half of the Tennessee Territory. And, uh, And as a result, bang. All of a sudden, Dad's back in the wrestling business. You know, he's uh, he's inherited uh, half the Tennessee territory. You know, uh, but he also, along with inheriting that territory, inherited a lot of problems too. 
and, and the problems he inherited were with his business partners. Uh, he had a business partner, Jerry Jarrett, uh, on the western side of the state. And uh, Jerry's inability, man, uh, to get along with Nick Goulas, who was running the eastern side of that territory, uh, it just left my father, and he was kind of trapped in a very unique wrestling war, in a, in, a, in, a, in a way, between two partners. And my dad owned half of both sides of those territories. And uh, so it ended up affecting the entire territory, both sides of it. And business began to drop like crazy uh, because of uh, this, this, this situation between Jerry Jarrett, Nick Goulas, and my dad kind of in the middle. So my dad and I, we had this conversation. Uh, one you asked about, Dave, uh, and it was early January, 1979. And we'd made a huge success of the old basically dead Gulf Coast territory mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, he wasn't interested in. You know, he, he knew that it was successful, but he didn't want to be a part of it. Now he was in a different situation. I think my father was also upset a little bit that my grandfather's lifetime of work was starting to fall apart. I mean, you know, my grandfather had made that Tennessee territory, and it wasn't just in Tennessee. It was in Arkansas and Missouri and uh, Mississippi. It was in so many states in the South. It was a monstrous territory. And uh, my granddad spent a lifetime building it, and uh, now it was just falling apart right in front of Dad's eyes. So both sides of the Tennessee territory weren't doing very well. Uh, the eastern side was mine, southeastern, and it was. And, you know, all these constant arguments were going on between his partners. I kind of felt sorry for him, you know, and uh, and I think that probably was a mistake uh, in the end for feeling sorry for him in a way. But, uh, but I knew that uh, he'd already offered Robert the booking job, and I'd made up my mind that uh, that wasn't a problem. But then when he asked about the other wrestlers and how many of them I might be able to send to Rob, <laughs> it was like, whoa. You know? <laughs> so I kinda, well, that's kind of where I guess we ought to end today, Dave, when we're talking about this 1979 nightmare month, you know. Uh, and, and I kind of want to get to this learning tree question because we didn't get to it last week. Uh, so, uh Next week, we can start with this question again, basically, this same subject. And, uh, and also, uh, in, the, in the segment uh, next week, uh, we're going to begin the search for a booker, man. Okay. All right. So we're going to hold you to that. Got to hear the rest of this story. All right. So here's the learning tree question, Stud. It kind of fits with what we've been talking about lately. Edmund Washington, Memphis, Tennessee, asks, I've just been learning about your Southeastern territories and your family. How did the Southeastern Knoxville territory compare to the Memphis territory on my side of the state? Well, geez, man, that's a great question. I love that one. You know, uh, Mr. Washington, I think it was his name. Uh, You know, uh, this goes right along, man, to what we've been digging into today here in a way, you know, so so I'm not sure exactly here. I'm a little confused about uh, exactly what he wants me to compare between the two territories. But uh, I do have some history there. 
the Memphis Territory. Like I said, I worked there quite a bit. Actually, I've had one of my first matches ever in Memphis. Mm -hmm. And uh, and uh, so I got some history. I know the cities in the in that that Memphis side of the territory, Memphis side of the state, uh, the building sizes, and uh, and I can probably compare some of the payoffs. So so let's start with the southeastern Knoxville. Uh, and we'll use this same 1979 time frame, and we'll try to compare Memphis Territory to southeastern Knoxville. So uh, Knoxville, and in the case of Knoxville, it was the largest market in the southeastern Northern Territory. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the size of the population of Knoxville and its surrounding areas in 1979, 1980, was about 180,000 people. Uh, the second largest market in that territory was in the Tri-Cities, which was three cities up there in the extreme northeastern part of the state, Kingsport, Johnson City, and Bristol. And uh, those three cities combined probably only had about 100,000 people. Uh, the remainder of the territory basically had a lot of smaller cities from 15,000 to 30,000. They were located in Kentucky and Virginia and Tennessee. Uh, so, you know, we didn't really have a lot of people to deal with. Uh, Knoxville's Coliseum was the largest building in that territory, and it would hold uh, somewhere between uh, 5,500 and and, and, and you never got to put 6,000 in it, or they never said there was 6,000 in it. I think sometimes we put more in it than that, and they didn't want to admit it. They didn't want to let people know that they had put that many people in there. <laughs> you know? So the next largest building was the Hazard, Kentucky, had a building of about 4,000. about 4,000. The Tri-City buildings held close to about 3,000, just under 3,000. And a lot of times we would go over 3,000 because, uh, you know, we'd have to turn away a thousand or two anyway. So we would pack them as much as we could get away with. And then all those smaller cities had mostly uh, gymnasiums. And those gyms held anywhere from, you know, 1,500 to some of them over 3,000. Uh, some of them were pretty good-sized gyms. So let's talk then about the about the size of the Memphis Territory and uh, what they had going on. So the Memphis Territory had basically three major markets. Memphis and its surrounding area was the largest in the state of Tennessee, had about 900,000 people, okay? Uh, it had a Mid-South Coliseum that held over 11,000 people because I had a lot of world championship matches, three of them in 1975 with Jack Briscoe. All three of them did over 11,000 people. Uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and its surrounding area was about 225,000. The Louisville Gardens held 6,000 people, close to the Coliseum size in Knoxville. Uh, the third market they had was Lexington, Kentucky, and it was about 200,000 people. Matches in Lexington, Kentucky was held in a rough basketball arena. <laughs> it held 20,000. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I mean, they had a whole new ball game going on literally up there in yes. Lexington. Uh, they ran another town, Evansville, Indiana, which was a weekly town for them. They only ran a rough arena about once a month. But wow, they put a lot of people in there. They did pretty well with it. Evansville, Indiana was another weekly town. 
But I didn't never work that town of Evansville. I don't know anything about the size of the city or the building because I never wrestled there. But the rest of the territory was like the like Knoxville, smaller cities and mostly wrestling in gymnasiums. So um, now let's compare the fans uh, that were coming to the buildings in these cities in 1978, 79. Uh, Memphis had that 900,000 people. And on many nights in 1978, uh, when they were doing bad, they were the, the territory was down. I, I've already explained that with the conversations about my dad. They weren't doing very well, and they needed help. They were putting less than 4,000 people in the Mid-South Coliseum when Knoxville had 180,000 people that lived there, <laughs> was putting in 5,000 every mm-hmm, week. Mm-hmm. We were beating Memphis. It had 900,000 people. Knoxville had 180,000. So. <laughs> Uh, you know, that's that's pretty wow. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, Louisville, Kentucky had 225,000 people. And in that same time period, uh, sometimes they had as few as 2,000 of them in the building. And up there in that little Tri-Cities area of 100,000 population, Kingsport, Johnson City, Bristol, we were drawing more than 3,000 a week in eastern Tennessee. So, uh, so then in most weeks in the fall of 1978, the Knoxville Territory alone uh, had a combined population of, uh, of less than 400,000 people, you know. And we were drawing more fans each week than the Memphis Territory was drawing with 1.3 million people. So, <laughs> wow, uh, you know, uh, uh, so we're less than a third of the population of the Memphis Territory. Uh, not only were we drawing more people, but our wrestlers were making more money every week than their wrestlers were. No, no doubt. Wow. Because we're crowds. Our crowds were basically bigger than theirs. So, uh, Mr. Washington, you know, I hope this gives you some comparison of the <laughs> success, you know, of the Knoxville Territory compared to the Memphis Territory. And we're talking about late 1978 and starting into this horrible year that, I'm, that I'm, we're going to be dealing with, 1979. Uh, Memphis was down. Uh, we were riding on top of a big wave. And, uh, wow, uh, where will I be headed the same direction? Oh, boy, that's an easy story for me after you told that uh, to understand, because what you did with a smaller market and less people and Memphis, as you said, a much larger market, you activated potential fans way better, way better than what Memphis did. You got the folks in the Knoxville area to spend the money and come to your shows Versus what happened across the state. Th- those numbers are remarkable, Stud. And so is this Studcast, no doubt. I think fans have learned more today about the wrestling business than any wrestling podcast in the world could possibly teach them. I can't wait for the next one. Let's get out there and take on Vince. Who's with me? <laughs> Let's storm the... S- I don't know. All right, so listen, this has been a ton of fun. And listen, on Facebook, the fun continues Go to Ron Fuller Welch, the Tennessee stud, and follow to participate in the dueling cards pick and TV pick as well. Look for the studcast number 282. That's this one. Look for the 282 post on all three sites and make your choices with the stud on Facebook. 
Do the same on Twitter. Find him on Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch. And if you've not done so already, follow him there too. That's another way to participate. On Twitter, same thing. Look for Studcast number 282. That's this one. Look for that post. Make your choices. On the YouTube channel, Southeastern Rewind, we talked talked about that earlier. Don't forget to join him for the first special YouTube-only Ask the Stud question and answer show. It's coming Saturday, January 21st, this year, 2023. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com is where you find everything that is the Tennessee Stud. His classic old school TV shows are fantastic. There are now 95 Southeastern, 23 Continental, 12 Gulf Coast TV shows available, all in the order in which they were recorded. Hundreds more are definitely coming. That's guaranteed. More than 50 stud stories are there. Six stars of the sport four superstars of the past, and many episodes of his audiobook, Brutus, plus hundreds of hours of other fantastic old-school wrestling. By the way, the stud is reading every page of Brutus, every chapter, and the voices are amazing. All this for only $4.99 per month or $39.99 per year, plus the free one-week trial is still available. It's the best deal in wrestling. All right, a tremendous show today, Stud. So where do we ride next week? Well, we're going to be returning Southeastern Knoxville Coliseum uh, for the held-up uh, Battle Royal $10,000 uh, tag match money. Um, we'll have a championship tag match in the cage on this card. And we're going to have an eight-man elimination tag match with some more new stars. That's going to be arriving in Knoxville. Dick Slater happens to be one of them. Uh, the TV, the results of the card, and the attendance are all going to be announced. And then we'll be going into Southeastern Gulf Coast. Uh, they have two cage matches, and one of those is for the Southeastern Championship. Plus, there's a Southeastern Tag Championship match on that card. The TV will talk about the results of the card and the attendance for the three cities. We'll uh, all be announced next week, and uh, then we'll uh, we're going to get back into the Doomsday 1979 segment. We're going to do, do do it every week. We're going to have some discussions about it. Sometimes uh, in depth. Sometimes maybe we won't be able to go quite as far in depth. But we're going to find out uh, who the next Southeastern Gulf Coast Booker was and how and why I chose him. So uh, I want to thank everybody for joining us today. And uh, please tell your friends and neighbors about us. Uh, Take care of yourselves out there and others. And may God bless us all. Boom. There's another one in the books right there. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This studcast is a David Summers production. For Tennessee Stud, LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson your friends and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.